Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Tim Voth preaches on coveting as we finish our Law for Life Sermon Series. Enjoy! All right, so we've been going through a sermon series called Law for Life, wherein we have been looking at the Ten Commandments, um, the famous Ten Commandments that most people know from the Hebrew Bible, which is Moses coming down Mount Sinai, with two tablets, and on those tablets are Ten Commandments from God to his people. And, you know, laws can often have a bad reputation of being, um, you know, too restrictive or not fair or too much of a joy kill. And so we might think of laws and go, why, why is God trying to be a joy kill, giving all these laws to everyone? But what we've been trying to show through this sermon series is that these laws are actually meant to be life-giving. These laws are actually trying to protect something and protect you and give you life. See, there's, there's the heart behind the law, and, and God has these desires and he has this design, and in order to protect that desire and design, he has put laws in place. And when we follow him, and when we don't go outside those boundaries, we have life, real life. And so I've looked back on, on the sermons that we've gone through, and I've tried to summarize for us in one sentence kind of what we've each been trying to say about that law, which is the heart behind it. And so let's just take a look at that list. Um, keep the true and living God absolutely first and central. Anything else in the, that place is an idol. So that's you shall not um, have any other gods before me. Carry God's name in reverence in your words and actions. You shall not take the na- Lord's name in vain. Take time to meditate on and trust in God's rule and reign in your life. Remember the Sabbath day. Give your parental relationships the weight it deserves. Honor your father and mother. Seek to be a life giver to everyone created in God's image. You shall not murder. Honor marriage, family, and sex as God's design. You shall not commit adultery. Be so transformed that you are generous with people with God's gifts. You shall not steal. Be truth tellers in all aspects of life. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so you can see that all of those things, put in a positive way, what we've been trying to share is that those are life-giving. Those are life-giving. And what God has wanted to do with the people of Israel that he has rescued out of slavery and he's brought into the wilderness, what he wants to do with his people is help them to image forth who he is, to image forth the Imago Dei, the image of God to the world, and to bring shalom, which just means the peace, the peace of God, peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with creation. God wants to, to help his people image forth who he is and bring peace to the whole world. That's what God is wanting to do, and these laws just help protect that so that that can actually happen. And the law that we're going to be looking at today is you shall not covet. And I could give a dictionary definition of what it means to not covet, or I could just tell you a little story that illustrates the point. Um, A few Sundays ago, when Adult Teen Challenge was here at our church, they set up uh, a bunch of things in the foyer that they had been working on and um, making themselves and selling so that they could have a bit of a profit, and um, it's a a great ministry. And so they made... um, pickled asparagus, which I love, and, and jam, and they had some like teddy bears and stuff for kids. And so I thought, hey, I want to do a few things at once, be generous to them, and also give my kids a gift. And so we, I bought this teddy bear, 
And I gave it to my kids, and guess what the first thing that happened was? They all fought over it. You know, there wasn't any like, oh, thanks, Dad. It was just grab, and then, uh, you know, hey, that, that's, I want that. I need that. And then, you know, taking it from the other person, no, that's mine. I got it first. And, and, and then they're just all kind of fighting over this bear, and something that they didn't even know existed five seconds ago, they suddenly desperately need for life. And... Um, now, I love my kids, but it's just a picture of them all coveting. And one of my kids even said to me eventually, Dad, you should have never got us that gift. It's just making us all fight. So that's a picture of coveting, right? Coveting, very simply, wanting what someone else has, almost just because they have it. And thank goodness that we as kids, you know, you don't have to teach kids how to covet. They just, they just covet. And thank goodness that we all grow up as adults and we, we grow out of that and now we are all content and at peace with each other. No, that's actually not true. We all still as adults covet and we have forces at work in our society and our culture that actually thrive on making us covet. Think of markets, think of advertising. A lot of it is, is designed to make us think that we need something that we didn't even think we needed a few seconds ago. You know, think of any commercial. You see a beer commercial and someone cracks open a beer and suddenly they're surrounded with friends that love them and they're having a party and there's girls around them and it's like, oh, I guess I need that beer if I want to have a social life. And so we start thinking that we need that thing, what that person has in order to have a fulfilling life or, or even like shoes or sneakers, you know, for back to school. The, the kid with the cool sneakers has a friend group around them. They've got the best life ever and it's because of these shoes apparently. And so we think, oh, I need those shoes. And, and our whole world, it seems like, is designed to make us want to covet. And that's not even to mention social media. Um, and so coveting, it's, it, it, it crowds out contentment. That's what I want to say today. Coveting crowds out contentment. We're content, we're grateful, until we see something that someone else has, and we need that. We, we absolutely need that for life. And all the contentment and gratitude we just had goes, Woof. and now our coveting has crowded out contentment. It's like picture, have you ever seen that science experiment where you put a bit of pepper on some water, and then you put a drop of oil in the middle, and all the pepper goes Woof, out to the sides. That's what coveting does to our contentment. And you know, the people of Israel, um, before they got the Ten Commandments, there's this story. There's this story where they are wandering through the wilderness and they are suddenly coveting. If only we had died uh, at the, by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out here into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And so there, they've been delivered, they've been saved miraculously, they're out in the wilderness, and now they're coveting Egypt. They're saying, look what they have. They have meat, they have cucumbers, they have all this stuff, they're filled and satisfied. Sure, we were slaves, but they have all this stuff, and, and we, we want that. So they're coveting what Egypt has because they think that's going to give them life, even though God is leading them to life somewhere else. And, and what do you think God does to this covetous people? What do you think he does? He... He rains down bread from heaven on them. He gives them what's called manna. He's the God of, of mercy and he's the God of provision. He's the God of providence. He, he sees their grumbling and complaining. He doesn't just wipe them out. He says, here, here, I'll give you everything that you need. 
everything that you need so that you're fully satisfied, so that you don't have to covet anyone. I'm going to provide for you. Yahweh is going to be your provider. And he gives them manna, which is miraculous bread from heaven, which just manna just means what is it? And they eat that and they're satisfied. And if you look at the story um, a little later on, it says that every person went out and collected. They would collect the manna. And at the end of the day, everyone had exactly enough. Even if they collected more, they had exactly enough. Even if they collected less, they had exactly enough. Every, God, in his sovereign provision, was giving everyone exactly what they needed for life. Every family unit. Isn't that cool? And so that's what God is doing. And in that, there's a test. There's a test to Israel. Will you trust Yahweh, your provider, to give you exactly what you need and have contentment in him? Or will you covet what other people have? And there's this awesome summary of the Ten Commandments in a a little book called Manna and Mercy that I love that says this. Dear partners, I chose you and liberated you. Therefore, you will trust only me. You will bring honor to my name and you will keep the Sabbath holy. And when you are tempted to follow the way of Egypt or the way of the people around you, you will refuse You will honor your parents. You will not kill. You will not run after another's spouse. You will not steal or deceive. And you will not covet your neighbor's manna. Love God. I just thought that was such a good summary. And so the test before Israel is, am I going to trust Yahweh as the provider that he gives exactly what I need and he knows that? Or am I going to covet someone else's manna? Is that what I'm going to do? That's the test. That's the test before them. That's the test before us. And so why don't we just look at this command, Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet. And I confess, I used to think it literally just said, you shall not covet. It turns out there are actually seven things that it lists that you shall not covet. I'll just read it and then we'll go through it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So let's just start with, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So like we said, you can picture with me, they've they've escaped out of Egypt miraculously through signs and wonders. God is amazing. This Yahweh is so powerful, more powerful than all these other false gods. And and we made it into the wilderness, and and the Egyptians were destroyed in the waters, and and now we're in this, this desert, and we've got some skins from our animals, and maybe we plundered Egypt, and we've got some some metal from them, and we've got some wood maybe out in the wilderness, and, and this, you can picture one family, builds a tent, and they go in the tent, got their wife and, and kids, and they're in this tent, and they're just so grateful, they're weeping, thank you, Yahweh, for delivering us, and, and we have just enough in this tent here, you've provided for us, our family is safe, wow, thank you, God, and they're grateful. And then the next morning, the, 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 they go out, and they're you know, they're grabbing manna, they're collecting their morning manna, and, and they, see, uh, they see Steve over there. And Steve, they see Steve's tent, and well, Steve's tent, he, he actually, it's a little bit bigger. He's got an extra room in his tent. And, you know, he goes, oh, okay, well, that's great. You know, Yahweh, thank you for Steve and what you've given him. That's great. Praise the Lord that, that he has a bit of a bigger tent than I do. And he goes back to his tent, and they eat manna as a family, and, uh, you know, they're fine. A little bit of discontent. The next morning, he goes out, he's collecting his manna, and he sees, uh, he sees John over there. Ooh, John's tent. He's got uh, a garage on his tent, and uh, it's two-story. And so he goes, oh, okay, huh. 
Well, why is that? Why does he, why does he get? No, no, no. It's okay. Be grateful for what you have. But really, why does he get to have such a bigger tent? And why, why does he have family that can help him get that bigger tent? And, and what's so great about him that he's got the skill set to build a bigger tent? You know, why is he allowed to do that? And where did he get all that material from? Ah, oh, okay, never mind. Forget it. Goes back to his tent, eats with his family, but ah, he's a little discontent, a little grumpier. Finally, third day, he goes out, collects manna, and now he sees Glenn. And Glenn, he's got a three-story tent. He's got a pool in the backyard, double-wide garage, for all his donkeys and, and his kids are playing in the back and, and he sees this family and they're just having so much fun in this massive tent and he's like, that's it. God, why does he get that and I don't? I need that. I want that. And God, I'm blaming you. You didn't give me the skills. You didn't give me the family. You didn't give me the, the material to build a tent like that. Why? What's so bad about me? Where, that's, that's unfair. It's inequality. God, you, you have decided where you give your provision poorly. I want his manna. And so he, and so he goes back to his tent, and now he's, he sits down with his family. He's just grumpy. You know, he's not, he's just angry, grumpy, and, and envious, and filled with jealousy. And you can just see, you can see going from, God, you've rescued us, you've saved us, thank you. You are enough. Thank you for protecting us. Uh, however big my tent, it's enough. Going from that to jealous, envious, even murderous, and blaming God. And suddenly all the contentment just goes off to the sides because of one seed of covetousness. And you know, it's, it's really hard to talk about housing and to not bring up the housing market in the Fraser Valley for the past while. You know, it's quite a phenomenon and it's really fascinating to see how this this can affect so many people so differently. The housing market, you know, there's some who have, who, who through God's providence and wisdom have maybe bought before the market went crazy and they've just made a ton of profit and equity and, and praise God, that's amazing. That's so amazing to see. And there's others who hasn't really affected and then there's others who, it's been really tough. Maybe they're a young family starting out and they just can't get in the market. You know, they don't really have family that can help them out and they're just, they're stuck and they're having to make really hard decisions. Do we live in a, in a basement suite with, you know, three kids? It's, and, and they can feel frustrated and sad. And, and it's really hard in this, in this market to see what, what God is up to. And I think for my wife and I, it has been a struggle. You know, it's been a struggle of the same test that lies before Israel. Are you going to trust the manna that God has given you? And trust that God has given someone else the manna that they need. And, and it's been hard to find contentment. And, you know, sometimes on, on harder days, it's like the coveting just crowds out all the contentment. And we forget what we actually have. You know, we've got a, a townhouse where our kids can step out the front door and we've got other young families right there. And, and, and if, we, if we let coveting have its place, then we lose that. Start to get jealous, start to get envious. And you know, the same test is for everyone. If, you, if you've got, you know, three properties and you've got, and you're doing great with equity, the same test is for you. Because you could covet someone who has more than you. Are you going to be content with what God has given you and generous with your manna? Same goes for if you've had a really hard time in this housing market. Can you still trust Yahweh's provision, be content in the manna he's given you, and be generous with your house? You know, I really think that 
What God wants to do is when someone who's con- someone's content in their house, he can make that house a home. You know, it doesn't matter the size of your house. If your house is filled with people that are following Christ and, and, and love each other and have said, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord, man, that house is a home. And God is going to use that in amazing ways. It doesn't matter the size. And so let's be content with what God is doing and be content with the manna that he's given. So that's, that's, that's don't covet your neighbor's house. Let's talk about you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or spouse. So, so Israel has been brought out of slavery, like I said, and God's wanting to build a new society, a new people, and one of the bedrocks of society and any culture is, is marriage. And so he's, he wants one man, one woman um, to come together in, in a union, in a covenant that's lifelong until they die. And it's like he says in Genesis, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. So, so marriages are meant to be the bedrock of the society that God is building. And he is, wants to, through the marriage, image forth who he is. This God of love, this God of mercy, this God of union. And he wants to show the world who he is through mar- these marriages in Israel. And, and, you know, often marriages will have offspring. And, and if those offspring are in a healthy, strong environment in their house, they're going to be fruitful and multiply. And they're going to fulfill the commission in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. And there's going to be, it's God's just going to spread his goodness and his shalom and his image throughout the world through marriages. And if we're being honest, any, every and every marriage throughout history, including our own, um, has had moments of, you know, tension, struggle, disagreement, um, even arguing, maybe fighting, um, and, and tension points. And God's design is, look, this is lifelong. You're going to undulate, you're going to go up and down, and this is, this is permanent, lifelong, till death do you part. Um, you know, the, the promises are, are serious in sickness and health, riches or poor, good times and bad times. And what God wants to do in marriages is shape you through it. You know, one of my favorite quotes about marriage is marriage is meant to make you not just happy, but holy. Marriage is meant to make you not just happy, but holy. And so through marriage, through those hard times, those are God-ordained to shape you. I picture a big chunk of marble and God is just chiseling away a masterpiece out of you too. And that's what those are designed. And so these people come out of struggle even more sanctified, more holy, more drawn to Christ, more close, and imaging him forth even more. So that's the purpose of marriage. And there's a lie, though. There's a lie that just like that drop of oil can just go and crowd out all of the contentment and joy and gratitude you had in your marriage. And that lie is when those conflicts start and there's disagreement and your personalities might rub each other the wrong way and maybe your priorities and goals... And there's that challenge and struggle. The lie might come, well, maybe, maybe you married the wrong one. Maybe this isn't the one for you. Maybe you're feeling discontent or you're feeling unhappy because you should have had someone else. You should have picked someone else. And that lie, that little lie, can set us on a trajectory that just leads to death. You know, we can have our, we can have our mind filled with um, false images of what people should be like, what marriages should be like, what our spouse should be like. Our world is great at that, filling our minds full of lies, you know, through social media, through magazine covers, through um, romance TV shows, um, uh, through even the pornography industry. Like, we can get this false sense 
of what it means to be married through all those things. And then we can create a fantasy about what it's actually like to be married and then start to pursue that fantasy instead of the reality. And that might even mean coveting and wanting an actual other person that you might know or that's in another marriage because you get this grass is greener mentality. Well, this, is, this isn't working. The grass is going to be greener over there. Um, they look happy. And so I need someone else. That's going to be the answer to my dissatisfaction in my marriage. And God is saying, no, no, stop. Don't go down that road. Just cut that off. Put it to death. Because you don't want to know the trajectory of that. You don't want to know and experience what happens at the end of that road. There's so much destruction and pain at the end of that road. You know, the coveting is the beginning of committing adultery. And that road is full of broken relationships and, and kids that are torn apart and, and the fabric of society being split up. And you don't want to go there. And so this law, do not covet your neighbor's wife or spouse, it's designed to protect that. And so we can look at people who might commit adultery and think, oh, I wouldn't do that. But let's trace the line all the way back to the heart. Don't covet even in your heart. You know, don't, if, if those little lies come up of, oh, you know, they're not the right one, or if I would be happier with someone else, or just take all the energy that you would put into to that thought, and I think God wants us to put that energy into our marriage, so that when challenges come, we don't say, oh, forget it, I'm leaving. We, we roll up our sleeves and we say, all right, it's time to grow, time to mature, time to love, and we take the energy we'd, we would put into to coveting other people's grass and we put it into our own lawn and we roll up our sleeves and we lay down the soil and we put the seed on there and we water it and we nourish and nurture a marriage that can actually be green and filled with peace and contentment. Don't covet someone else's spouse. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to so much destruction and make you jealous and envious and make you blame God. If you trust God's provision of manna that you are with who you are with, you're going to be content with that and work on each other in honest conversation and dialogue and try to find help and make this work so that you're holy and you're, you're more fulfilled through it. So don't covet your neighbor's wife or spouse. Now, I've clumped the, the next four together. You shall not covet uh, his male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey. And basically this is just... Um, to summarize, kind of like your means of wealth or your wealth or your income or the tools, how you got there. And just briefly on this, what I would say is if God has blessed you with wealth through your hard work, are you grateful? Are you grateful to God? And can you see his hand of provision all along the way? Thank you, God, that you gave me the ability to do this, the, the intellect to do this, the tools that worked to do this, the whatever it is, the family that could help me are you grateful every step of the way that God is providing that manna for you? And now with your wealth, are you, are you blessing other people with that manna as well? Don't covet other people's wealth. Even if you're wealthy, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you can still covet. You can still think, ah, but if only I had more. Don't go there. And if you have worked hard maybe and you're, just, you're not as wealthy as someone else, can you be content with the manna that God is giving you? Maybe you've worked really hard, but... Don't let your heart turn like Cain's. Maybe you know the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brought a sacrifice to God and God blessed him. And Cain brought a sacrifice and it wasn't the right sacrifice, I guess. The story can kind of be vague, but what, is Cain, what could Cain have done? 
He sees Abel. He has success. He has um, affirmation in life. He's wealthy, maybe. He's got all the things. And he brought a sacrifice. And Cain's thinking, oh, I brought. Uh, didn't I sacrifice? Didn't I work hard? Why, why is mine not good enough? Like, what's, what's wrong with me? And he could have in that moment said, you know what, God? You've provided my brother so many good things. Praise you. You're the God of justice, and you know why. And me, I'll be content with whatever you give me. I'll, I'll come to you and sacrifice to you. Whatever you give me is enough. He didn't do that. He said, that's not fair. That's not fair. I sacrificed. I worked hard. That's not fair. And, and all these murderous, jealous thoughts grew up in his body, in his mind, and in his heart. And he went and he killed Abel. So if you see people around you that are more wealthy, what's your reaction? Are you somebody who becomes jealous and murderous and blames God? That's not fair. Or are you content with what God has given you? I think one test is if as a congregation, we're actually weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. You know, one of the tests of a friendship I heard is you can tell a friend good news and bad news. When you tell them good news, they rejoice with you. When you tell them bad news, they weep with you. But coveting wrecks relationships because when someone tells you good news and you're covetous, you think, it's not fair, and you just get angry with them. And maybe you try to knock them down a few notches. And when someone tells you bad news, maybe in the depths of your heart you think, well, serves them right. Finally, they're knocked down to my level. You know, we want to be a people that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. And maybe that's a good test of our own hearts, if we're coveting or not. And so we've seen how um, we shouldn't covet anything. You know, he finishes by saying, the law finishes by saying, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And in the Hebrew scriptures, um, the number seven is often like a symbol of completeness. So it's just trying to say like, Completely anything and everything that is not yours, don't want it. Don't desire it. Whether it's someone else's hair or their body or their genetics or their clothes or their income or their social life or their, their career, whatever, where they live, don't let coveting crowd out your contentment. Trust God with the manna he's given you. And so... We've seen how, how coveting can destroy, you know, our relationships with each other and really wreck our inner world and make us envious and jealous and bitter. But the one thing I also want to say is that coveting can actually destroy our relationship with God. And in the Ten Commandments, we started with idolizing. You shall not have any other gods before me, and you shall not make any idols. And Yahweh is saying, look, I don't want to see any of your false gods. I'm the only living God. Then we end here with coveting, and coveting is actually a form of idolatry. Look at this interesting link that Paul makes in Ephesians 5 to coveting and idolatry. He says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, gratitude. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So coveting is actually idolatry. That's worth thinking about for a while. How? How is coveting idolatry? Well, Tim Keller has a lot to say about idolatry, so let's just look at a quote from him and, and think about it. He says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek 
to give you what you only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. So in coveting, we always want something in the future that we don't have yet. Something that they have that I don't have. It's the ever unhad. It's the forever not have that you want. And you think in your mind that when you get that thing, it's going to give you satisfaction and fulfillment uh, deep in, in, the, in your soul. And it's going to give you happiness. And what happens whenever we actually get those things? Does it really last? No, we end up wanting other things. And so we are trusting things that other people have for our own satisfaction. And we, we are not trusting God to fill us and give us everything that we need. And you know, in the, in the Hebrew um, Bible, in the Old Testament, these people, they had literal, literal statues. You know, um, the Ashtaroth, the Baals, the, the Dagons, that they would literally kneel before and worship these idols, these handmade things, because they thought they were connected to things like fertility and and wheat harvest, and wealth, and success, and so they worship these things. Give us these things, please. And we look at that and think it's so archaic and foolish, and we in our culture are no better, if not worse. We've just skipped the middleman. We don't make a little image and worship it. We just go straight to the thing. We want wealth. We want what other people have, because that's going to give us satisfaction and happiness. And those are actually idols. And the irony in this passage is it's pretty harsh. It says, you know, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's almost like, this is how I picture it. We're looking around at everyone else for life because they have things that would give us happiness in life. And we're, that's so distracting that we're not looking at, to the one who has real life. And if only we would want what he has, <laughs> we would have eternal life. But we neglect him. We don't pay attention to God and his life that we could have we're too busy looking here and we miss out on eternal life in the kingdom of God. We're a covetous, broken people. We covet, we idolize from young on. And you know, it's like Moses, if you follow the story, at the end of the Ten Commandments we've been going through, he comes down the mountain and what does he see Aaron doing? His brother, Aaron. He's built a golden calf and they're all worshiping it. And Moses is so frustrated. What's the point of these laws? If deep in the human heart, there's this desire to idolize. And these laws are, they're not going to do anything about that. These laws are clearly powerless to stop that. And so in his fury, he smashes the tablets. These laws can't do anything to stop this. And maybe that's what you feel. You, know, you see that you're convicted of your own covetousness, your own inability to stop idolizing and you look at these laws and you want to just smash them they don't they're not going to help and and one guy tim Mackey, said this about the law the laws were not adequate to completely guide and reshape the broken human condition to live in love and obedience to god humans need more than just to be told what to do the reason we make decisions is tied into our affect what we desire motivation not just because it's the right thing to do the Torah is a story, and you follow a story by reading it to get its message and then responding to its message. So to follow the story of the Torah would be to get on your knees and to say, please, God, change my heart. And so, God, we do. We ask, deliver us from our covetousness. Deliver us from being an idolizing people. 
we can't do this and the law is powerless to change our hearts. Lord, we need you. We call out to you. We fall to our knees and we say, please, God, change our hearts. And, you know, I remember one time when I was younger, um, a little more melodramatic uh, as a teen, when I had just become a Christian and I was starting to realize just how deep my sins were. I remember literally falling to my knees outside one time, kneeling down at night under the stars, becoming aware of my sinfulness and literally thinking, literally thinking that God is probably going to just wipe me out right now. He's going to smite me. I am too sinful. And just waiting there, waiting. And what I got instead was a cool breeze on my cheek, a shooting star in the sky, and peace and silence. And deep in my heart, an affirmation. The same affirmation from God that Moses received when he goes back up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments again after he smashed them. The Lord met with him and said this. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so we call out for a deliverer. And God meets us. He is the God who is loving and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he's provided us a deliverer. As we look to the New Testament, we see Jesus. And Jesus says this about himself. Listen to this. In John 6, Jesus said to them, Verily, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, the manna, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, the people he's talking to said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. And so it's this picture. Israel was given exactly what they need, the exact manna they needed to sustain their life. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you exactly what you need. I am the bread. Me, I'm what you need to not just have life here, but have eternal life. That broken relationship between you and God because of your idolatry, I'm coming to give you fullness of life and restore that relationship. Through my life, you can have eternal life. Eat of me. You'll be satisfied. Believe in me. Trust in me. And you'll have life, not just day to day like the the Israelites, but forever, forever. Jesus is the manna from God. Jesus is enough to give you life. You know, the Israelites feasted on Passover once a year to remember they were saved by the blood of the lamb. We feast on communion to remember our exodus from slavery to sin and our journey to the promised land, to the place where one day we will have no need of anything Because we'll have everything we could ever need. And we can actually experience that now too. Jesus, through his substitutionary death, he's he's died the death that you deserve in your separation from the kingdom of Christ and God. He's died that death you deserve. And he offers you his life. His life can be yours as well. He wants to give you eternal life. He can sustain everything you need in this life. Whether it's housing, spouse, um, wealth, Anything, he wants to give you exactly what you need, but he wants to give you eternal life. Are you content with that? 
Do you trust Jesus for that? Can you be content in that? And, you know, I picture a, a contrast here. I picture the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, and they're grumbling and they're complaining, um, and they're following Moses, their shepherd. But I picture a contrasting image that the psalmist writes. Psalm 23, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want shall not want. And it's actually the same Hebrew word, want, that is said when they collected all the manna and they had no wants. And I picture a people, I picture you, I picture our congregation as a people following Jesus, the good shepherd, through every high and through every low, and and just saying, Jesus is enough for me. He's delivered me from sin and death. He's given me eternal life. Jesus is enough. Following him, I have no want. What else could I want? What else could I want? I don't need what they have. I don't need what they have. I have my shepherd. I have Jesus. He's enough for me. And when you have Jesus, he crowds out covetousness. Christ crowds out the covetousness. When you have him, when you know him, when you've tasted of his goodness and you're following him through every high and through every low, it crowds out that desire, that need to have what other people have because you have true life. And so you might be in the valley of the shadow of death with sickness and pain and and, and you, you might be tempted to covet people who have health and you might just, and, but you can say, no, I've got my shepherd. He's with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And you might be on a mountaintop by green pasture and still water and just instead of saying, oh, I want greener pasture, I want more water, you just say, this is enough. Jesus is enough for me. And in that, you have shalom, you have peace. You don't have uh, kids fighting over the teddy bear and, and us all fighting with each other. You have peace, shalom. And that, that is a picture to the rest of the world. That's, that's us on mission. Being content in Christ is us on mission. I mean, what says more, something more powerful than, you know, it doesn't matter how the size of my house, it doesn't matter, you know, our, our, our marriage, where it's at, it doesn't matter about the wealth I have. God is enough for me and I'm satisfied in him. What does that say to our world about the goodness of God? That, that's a statement of his image and his shalom that he wants to share with the whole world. Because God is enough for me. And so I think it's fitting that we end on communion here this this morning. Um, We've looked at the law and we've seen that it's wise. These Ten Commandments, they're wise. God in his wisdom has said, here are the boundaries. If you go past those, there's death. Trust me, there's death and destruction. Stay in these boundaries. It's good. Um, But the law is also a mirror It shows us at the same time our inability to follow these laws. And the law is actually powerless to change us. A law might be wise, don't do this. But it doesn't actually help us not do that. It just informs us that we shouldn't. And so it it brings us to a place where we have to call out for a deliverer. And listen to this in Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. I'm just going to read it. This is what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So There's a lot in there, but basically, the law can't save you. But Jesus can. Jesus has come to do what the law couldn't do, to pay for the 
the debt that we incur by not following the law, but also to fill us by his spirit so that we can actually walk out what the law, the heart of the law, what it was trying to do. We can actually live that out. We can live out the heart of the law by being filled with the spirit. And day by day, step by step, we can grow in understanding and following what God wants us to follow. We, we can taste through the cup, through the bread, through through trusting in Jesus, we can taste his goodness and our desires can grow and change through the Spirit. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to leave that verse up there for you. And if you've got your elements, your bread and your cup, you can pause the video and um, partake of communion. And during communion, just take time to read the passage, to confess your own coveting, your inability to follow the law, and then embrace Jesus as the one who can give you true contentment in all aspects of your life and for eternity. So you can pause the video now and take communion. And so I'd just like to close us off um, here in this service. We trust that the law is for life. We don't want to be legalists that just follow the law and miss the heart of the law. But we don't want to be licentious and just think the law has no bearing in my life. I can do whatever I want. Not legalism, not licentiousness, but life. Life through the Spirit. And so I'd say to you, allow Christ to crowd out all covetousness. Trust the gift of God to save you and his Spirit to renew you and help you follow him. Walk according to the Spirit. Walk according to love And so fulfill the law and experience true life. So I've got a benediction here from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24 that says this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together. Thank you that your word is so powerful and your word shows us at once the problem and the solution, the curse and the remedy. And we just thank you for Jesus who has come to save wrecks like us, to bring us into your fold and into your kingdom. Help us as a people to walk according to your spirit so that we could experience abundant life and be a witness to the people around us of the goodness of God. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for watching and have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.